Lord Jesus, it can be easy to be numb Monday through Saturday and just continue to anesthetize with worry, concern, with, with cares of this world that, while important, are, are not defining of us. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us not to just leave those things at the door, but to bring them in here, to sit and submit them at your feet and so that we can pick up the infinite worth, the dignity and the value and the love and the care in, the, in your gospel that you give us in you. Lord, help us to, 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 as Price said, to wait with hope, not to wait as those who have no hope, but anticipation that you are even now at work and are bringing about the restoration of all things. Lord, we pray all these things in your name this morning. Amen. So in, his, in a, a new book that I, I have not read all of it yet, but I still heartily endorse because, I mean, it's amazing so far. Uh, it's You Are Not Your Own by Alan Noble. And the, the subtitle of that is Belonging to God in an Inhuman World. And in the very beginning of the book, in the introduction, he, he uses at, for what is probably one of the best illustrations of anything I've ever heard. And he introduces and talks about this thing called zucosis. Now, if you're not, if you're not familiar with this term, zucosis is, this, is what we refer to as the study of animals, uh, like in zoos, hence zoo, um, and how being in captivity changes their habits and behaviors, and it's basically a psychosis. And it's all about that which is caused directly by their being in captivity. And he uses an example of how lions, and I didn't, I didn't know that this was actually, it never occurred to me, but it makes total sense, that lions in captivity pace back and forth. And that doesn't happen in the wild. A lion, if you're moving, you're either hunting or going to the place where you're going to be hunting. Like, there's no reason for a lion to pace in the wild. And so it's, it's because of that captivity. And, you know, we know, we can know more about lions than lions know of themselves, right? We, we have biology and genetics. We have um, uh, zoologists to study their habits. And we, you can make all of the, their habitat as realistic and lifelike as possible. But there's something of, of the soul that isn't there, right? Because no matter how realistic that habitat is, no matter how informed it is by data and science, they still smell hot dogs and kettle corn, right? They're still confused and have no idea what to do with snow. They'd still rather eat the tourists snapping photos than the most nutritious inert slabs of meat that they're given that is chock full of vitamins that they need to survive. Really, the only thing truly natural is the anxiety that fuels their pacing. The word that Danny has in the head in the, uh, the verse for our call to worship this morning, in verse 10 of our passage, you'll notice the word ransomed. It's not just a great hipster name for your kids, I know, because our oldest is named Ransom. Uh, but the word ransom is in, in your English Bible is present 12 times, but the concept is in 32 different passages throughout all of Scripture. And it, what it means is to be rescued by payment from captivity, to be delivered, 
to be released, to be set free. It implies that we have a zucosis of our own that is a kind of spiritual homelessness that's characterized by the unnatural captivity of brokenness, sin, and death. Right? Romans 7 says it really explicitly that, that we, are, we had been held captive by sin, but in Christ that is no more. But there's still an experience of this. And because it's all we've ever known and it, and it has, we, we have infinite distractions in modern life, we struggle to name it. We struggle to understand, like, oh, this is why I react this way. It's because I'm spiritually homeless. We don't really know what to do with it. And we may have even developed some outright Stockholm Syndrome. So this is where I want to start this morning is in verses 1 through 4, Isaiah helps us and gives us, paints a picture that helps us to name our homeless captivity. He says, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with the recompense of of God, he will come and save you. All this desert imagery is intended to convey this profoundly inhospitable environment we live in, which is the entire world, in in a fallen, post-fall brokenness and, and sinful sense. It is an inhuman experience of captivity and homelessness. But I want to like, let Let's bring that, that kind of metaphoric language to some dimensions of life that we can all probably relate to, right? There's a relational uh, inhumanness that we're all dealing with right now, and that is masks, right? Now, I'm going to tiptoe around this landmine. Like, we're not, we're not going there. Don't, we're not going to the place that you're worried I might be going to in terms of, like, this becoming, like, a political <sighs> circus. Um, I just mean that I, it, it hit me the other day how the disparity and how different my experience of wearing a mask is, for example, going to King Supers than it is this morning, right? I'm not even talking about like the singing aspect of it. I, honestly, that doesn't bother me personally very much. If it bothers you, it's fine. I miss your faces. I miss seeing your smiles. I, I miss, I mean, you're missing out on mine. I've got some great expressions going on underneath my mask that you're just missing out on, right? But that hit me that I don't think about that in King Supers because I, you can go through the entire store. You can go shop for all your groceries and then go through the self-checkout line without having a single meaningful human interaction. Right? It's, it's stunning. You know, pastors, it used to be kind of cliche uh, to talk about how, you know, in a suburban context, you can just, you know, drive into your garage and park and never say hi to your neighbor. Like, what a suburban technology it is to go through the self-checkout line right? I mean, we're not even talking about the metaverse yet. That's a whole other sermon, right? But it's inhuman. Let's talk about the inhuman occupational dimension, right? If you live in this place, whether you're born here or you came from somewhere, somewhere else, you had to hustle to get here, right? You had to work your tail off. You had to get, the, everybody's competing for jobs in Boulder County, right? Like, especially if you're coming from, I don't know, 
Mississippi or something. I'm just making a place where the weather sounds terrible to me. Um, you can't slow down now, though, because everybody else hustled to get here and everybody else is hustling to stay here. And it's like an anxiety-inducing thing to go slower than or take a break that your coworkers aren't. It's, a, it's this implicit pressure, this captivity. Like, we're not even talking about... I mean, let's talk about screens, right? Or, or not even the screens themselves, but the fact that for the first time in history, we have 24-7 access to every example and situation of human brokenness in the world and zero agency to do anything about it. We can know who said something stupid in Timbuktu and be so consumed with that that we forget our neighbors live 12 feet away. Some of these things are like coping mechanisms that are equivalent to alliance pacing, like a smartphone addiction. Some are necessary walls erected to compensate for the brokenness of creation itself. For example, a mask, vaccines. Or the, God, if you follow the news and speaking of 24-7 access to all the terrible things going on in the world, the tornado that tore through um, huge swaths of Kentucky, some of, the, some of these things are consequences of sin and selfishness that just pervade, are pervasively present at scale, like the chronic busyness that we all struggle with as a result of this implicit assumption that we have to achieve rather than receive our dignity, value, and worth. Isaiah describes the result of all this, the symptoms of this zucosis from living so unnaturally, and it's weak hands, feeble knees, and anxious hearts. And even if you don't have that like physical manifestation, it's, we all know still that we, it, this adds up to an intuitive kind of gut-level dissonance that this is not the way it's supposed to be that this is not what we are made for, but we just keep pacing. That said, there's good news here. Isaiah promises a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's not a train. He says in verses 5 through 7 that we are actually already spiritually at home in Christ. He's looking forward to what we look backward to. And verses 5 through 7 say this, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped, then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And the burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Now, if, this, if that language, either when I read it or when Bryce said it earlier, if that sounds familiar to you, it should, because in Luke chapter 7, when uh, after John the Baptist is imprisoned and he's basically awaiting trial and probable execution, he sends one of his, his disciples to Jesus to ask, like, hey, just want to double-check and make sure you're really him, right? Like, you are the Messiah, and this is worth it. <laughs> like, who can't identify with that? And Luke chapter 7 says this in response. It says, And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. 
The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. See, like everybody else, John the Baptist expected the Messiah to come and bring basically all of verses 5 through 10 into the world all at one time. But what Jesus is kind of implicitly communicating here is, yes, I am and I understand and I know that everything that Isaiah talked about isn't happening right now, but look to me. Look in hope to the already, even as you are still hoping and waiting for the not yet. Right? That, that dynamic between the already and not yet, this is, it's a bittersweet thing. But I want, us, I, I want us to like kind of camp out in the already part because this is why we celebrate Advent still, even though Jesus came on Christmas. We are waiting for that time when verses uh, eight through 10 are come to make new, be made new. But in the midst of that, we have two incredibly, unfathomably good news dimensions that we can sink our teeth into. The first is this, which is the incarnation. The incarnation, Jesus, God becoming man, being born into human creation. This is the single greatest most cosmic act of empathy in all of history. I, I wish I had, I'm, I'm one who is prone to hyperbole and I still am understating it. It is, and that is a comfort. It is a comfort physically, right? To, if, you are, if you are experiencing like health issues or economic challenges, right? Let me put it this way. Uh, Hannah and I, we, we got Ransom a... Uh, uh, a little like little people, like the brand little people, like a play nativity. So he didn't play with our, you know, willow tree kind of pseudo fancy and but very suburban nativity. Um, and it's just it's all clean. It's like cartoony, and and he keeps asking, you know, the 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 willow tree version of them. He's like, why don't they have faces? I'm like, it's an artistic thing. And he's just like, yeah, but then you can't see their faces. And I'm like, do you actually have a point with that? Um, and something happens through our own familiarity with the nativity story and nativity scenes that kind of takes all of the expression out of it and some of the nitty-gritty. And instead, we think that the nativity is some kind of like Middle Eastern glamping uh, excursion, right? But that's not the case. Mary gave birth in the, the least sterile environment in her day or ours, Imagine just the fecal parts per million in the stable, the air alone, right? The hay was not clean. It probably smelled of urine. The word that was with God from the beginning, the word that is God, the word that by whom all things are created, as John, the Gospel of John says in chapter 1, it is, by, it is him who made himself as vulnerably and impoverished and human as any of us. And then almost immediately thereafter, right, right, right after the nativity scene, they have to flee their home. They become as homeless as any refugee fleeing with only the clothing on their back to Egypt. It's a comfort not just for us physically, but also socially. If you wrestle with shame, Ain't nobody got more shame than an unwed teen, teen mom in first century Israel. She would have been a pariah. 
Joseph would have been a contemptible fool because if it's like best case scenario, it's his child and he's seriously broken some social and religious norms. At worst, it's somebody else's and he's staying with her anyway, right? We celebrate what was then this, this hyperbolically shameful thing because we know the end of the story, but how many of you, when you were younger, how many of you, how many of your parents would have believed you if you and your you know, high school boyfriend or girlfriend uh, were, became pregnant and you started telling everybody, hey, we, it's not because we, didn't, we slept together. That, that didn't happen, everybody. This is God's baby. Like, you'd be, you'd be in a straitjacket if, if they actually believed that you believed that and weren't just lying through your teeth. They weren't idiots, <laughs> right? This would have been shameful and weird. The incarnation, though, is also a comfort spiritually. Even more than all of this, on the cross, this is the, this is the, the prelude and the foreshadowing that happens even more fully on the cross when Jesus is estranged from his Father in heaven, whom he enjoyed relationship from eternity past, so that when we feel distant from God and wonder if he's there, if he's actually at work in the world or in our lives, we can look at him on the cross when he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we know that Jesus is not unsympathetic to what we are going through. The second, really piece of, the, the second piece of really good news that we are already spiritually at home in Christ is that God has given us a home away from home. That's the church. Ephesians uh, 1.23 actually says, says it really amazingly. Paul says, the church is his body, referring to Jesus' body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Maybe just frank, be frank. We normally read that kind of passage as like, oh, it's a metaphor. Like, because Jesus is in all of our hearts, the church is the body of Christ because he's there whenever two or more are gathered. And like, that's absolutely and completely true. But it's also the church is, is Jesus's earthly manifestation until he returns. What we're doing right now is Christ on earth. That's not just a powerful and vivid imagery, but it's not just imagery. I want to, let me read um, from the message. The message is Eugene Peterson. He wrote basically a translation of a translation, so it's kind of like, you know, uh, biblical telephone. It's not technically scripture, but it's faithful to it. Um, and he says this, and paraphrasing that same verse, the church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The church, sorry, the world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. If you're wondering where God is, welcome. He's right here. And the degree to which we, we forget this or neglect it. The degree to which we treat the church as peripheral to the world or our world or whatever facet or aspect of the world that we find ourselves in competition with the church, 
the home that we long for is also going to feel peripheral to, to our hearts. So if you're spiritually restless, anxious, or doubting, I'd encourage you to ask if that might be. There's maybe other reasons why, but ask yourself if that is maybe because you're trying to do it on your own and that there is this beautiful home that is longing to embrace you more fully. So let me put these two together and and ask, how do we apply this? How do we take these two pieces of good news of the incarnation and our home away from home and put them together. The first is probably pretty obvious. It's this. It's Sunday worship. I was telling um, everybody who, were, who was serving this morning, as we have kind of a prayer huddle before everything gets started, and I was saying that, you know, when the shepherds are told the good news of Jesus' birth, and the angels are, are breaking out into song, and you have the heavenly chorus, the language of that passage in Luke is as if the angels are breaking through the veil, like the curtain is being torn apart between heaven and earth, and you get a glimpse of what worship is happening all the time in heaven. And what we do on Sunday morning is actually a breaking in of this future, beautiful, amazing reality into our present. It's almost like kind of a, uh, you know, you're familiar with the idea of deja vu, right? That weird feeling that you're like, wait, I've actually done this before. I've said these words and you have this weird kind of like, why is this so familiar? But it's a deja vu, not of the past, but of a certain future promise. That's that comfort that you're feeling this morning. That's a heavenly deja vu, a future deja vu. The second thing is, actually understanding and learning to follow Jesus vocationally. I don't mean like getting into vocational ministry. I'm saying the vocation or the, the, the living out of the gospel and following Jesus in all of life is how we remember that we have a home and that we are at home because Christ is in us. So toward that end, um, if that's something that you really want to explore, maybe save the date on uh, Saturday, January 30th, because we're going to start a, a spiritual formation incubator. And that, that day is going to be like a, an information se- uh, session, that afternoon, Saturday afternoon of January 30th. And you can come hear more about that and what that means. But until then, and here's the third thing, I want you to know like you're, you've been doing and maybe haven't noticed or known, you've been doing exactly what I would encourage you to do to remember your home in Christ Monday through Saturday. The um, Advent stillness and silence that Bryce led us through this morning that we've been doing through Advent, I told, we totally bait and switched you guys. That's actually called something called the, the, uh, the daily office where you sit in stillness and silence for a few minutes to allow your mind to slow down, to allow Jesus to, to make his presence felt and experienced and known. And then you read a short passage of scripture, and then you respond to that short passage in prayer. If you do that once a day, you're going to be able to remember home a lot more in the midst of whatever captivity you are fighting in. It will nourish you. It will fuel you. All of this is leading up to verses 8 and 10. Because yes, we, we, we are already at home because Christ is in us. But one day, there will be a time when home cannot be peripheral 
in our lives anymore because home becomes pervasive throughout all of creation. Let me reread verses 8 through 10 to remind us. And a highway shall be there, and it shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come up on it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee no more. This, this is the advent we hope for. The advent of Christ's second coming, our once and for all homecoming, after which we will be unable to leave home because all the symptoms of our captivity and our homelessness scurry into the night, and its causes will not be found there. Like my favorite part of this passage is, is, is verse 8. It says, it shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. Who's that good news for? (laughs) Like, even if you're an idiot like me, you 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 can't leave anymore. That's actually really good news because our hearts are prone to wander, right? And it's so comforting, actually, to know that even as we are struggling and doubting and wondering, God, are you there? There will be a time when it won't even occur to us to ask the question. Never mind experience anything different. Some of you may be asking, okay, like, and by the way, this is the last thing I'll say before we go into the Q&A. So if you have questions, text them in now. Some of you may be asking yourselves, or maybe one of the questions you're texting is, why, so why does God wait? This sounds awesome, and it sounds not at all like the world that we currently live in. So why does God not do it now? The short version of that answer is I'm not sure. I don't know. We can't say for certain, but we, we can say that we can wait even as we are waiting on him for three, for three, in three ways, right? The first is it cannot be. The answer to that question cannot be because he doesn't care, because we already know he does because of the incarnation. The second is, it cannot be that he has left us hanging or without a refuge because he's given us a home away from home, which is the church, to sustain us. And then lastly, there is a a, a place in Scripture that gets pretty explicit in in kind of addressing this question. It comes from 2 Peter chapter 3 where Peter tells the church, he says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, he wants all who have been ransomed by Christ's fulfillment of this passage to know and to come and to be brought home. This is the prodigal father who is waiting at the, at the front of his, his front porch, waiting for the prodigal son to come back over the horizon, searching, hoping, longing for home to be reunited with his people. And he's patient because he loves 
And whatever the reasons in the cosmic sense that we can't wrap our finite minds around, at the very least, it's because he loves. Let me see if we have any questions this morning. We do not. I love questions, guys, by the way. I really like it. It's good. It's helpful. Like, I know, like, was, I mean, I'm just assuming that if you don't have any questions, then that was the perfect sermon you've ever heard. There's no way to improve upon it. Complete and total clarity. I'm kidding. Anyway, let me pray as we move to communion. Jesus. You know fully, full well how bad I am at waiting and how hard sometimes it is when we are in this captivity and homelessness that makes it hard to see where you are at work in this world, Lord. Especially because if, if we who bear your image and call you our God are at all faithful in that, we're not looking for attention. We're not looking for any accolade that the love that we're called to is a quiet and patient and humble one. But Lord, we have your word. We have your word that, that reassures us in a way that isn't devoid or completely separate from our experience, but is despite millennia and despite being cultures and worlds and, and oceans apart, Lord, it still understands and is honest about the brokenness of the world that we live in that is explicit and, and brutal in its, its, its explanation and description and imagery of our captivity. So, Lord, I pray, um, I pray that you would, at communion, give us a taste of home, that you would use it to nourish us, that even though we are still at times feeling like we're wandering in the wilderness, that we would have that, that forward-looking look, deja vu, that the taste of it would be a taste of, of the hope that you are bringing about nonetheless. Lord, we pray all these things in your name. Amen.